0: We're gonna talk about following Jesus today wherever he asks us to go. Following Jesus wherever he asks you to go. Are you committed to following Jesus to wherever he asks you to go? A teenage boy was at the mall with his dad showing him that weight set that he had wanted for so long and he said, Dad, I promise, I promise I'll lift on a regular basis. I need to build up my strength for my football team Help me out, Dad. Come on. Dad said, "Son, that's that's a big commitment, and these, this is really expensive." He said, "Dad, you'll see, you'll see. Just give me a chance." So Dad relented, paid at the counter, was walking away, and a few steps from the counter, he heard his boy say, "What? You mean I have to carry them to the car?" <laughs> we're kind of like that with um, with Jesus. Sometimes we sign up, we're in, we're all committed all systems go, all in. And then somewhere along the way, we get busy in life and job and work and we forget about the priorities that he's called us to. I think we're well-intentioned, most of us. But I think the reason we need to read the Bible and hear preaching and teaching is God will remind us of his priorities. And that's what I'm going to try to do with you today. Let me read to you the priority that I'm going to emphasize today when it comes to the words of Jesus Christ. Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Wow, that's that's the main purpose of Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our Lord and Savior. You are the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings. You have loved us so well, and you've done so much for us, and I believe today you'd want to remind us of the priority. So would you come by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet us, touch us, lead us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things that I see that I want to bring out of this text today, and the first is this. Will you personally answer the call to be a follower of Jesus? Perhaps you're here, and you haven't done that yet. Hey, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with, with being on a journey and trying to figure it out. We were all there at one time. And you're watching people, and you're listening to words, and you're saying, God, are you real? Maybe you haven't decided yet, but I hope you do because I know he'll meet you and love you. But I want to make a distinction today. Uh, I'm not as fond of the term Christian as I used to be. And I'll tell you why. It's kind of been stolen away from us. Uh, people are Christian these days a lot like they're Catholic, meaning I was born into it. It's not always, maybe not mostly in our culture, especially those who don't know Jesus, not, not, not really thought of as, as, a, as a life that is lived in Christ. It's thought of more like I was born in America, so I'm American, I was born in a Christian home, so I'm Christian. I prefer the term follower of Jesus Christ. And, and this is why, because when people say Christian, I don't know what they mean by it these days. That means a lot of things to a lot of people. But when you say follower of Jesus Christ, now we're getting down to it. And let's be honest, aren't there a lot of people who call themselves Christians that don't really follow Jesus Christ? I mean, isn't that the truth? We're looking at his words to say, Jesus, who are you and what are you, what are you talking about? And they're not representing him well. And maybe it's because many people who say they're Christians don't really know him. in a a personal way. But I I want us to be aware too that we can be born into a Christian home and uh, go to church and not really be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the follower of Jesus Christ is the person who says, Jesus, whatever you want for my life, I'll go there. I'll do that. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Well, I'm not against the term Christian, I use it quite often myself, but I like that term follower of Jesus Christ because it, it really means with everything. Mark 2.13, we're going to read a story. Here are the words of Jesus that are going to come to us. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus... Sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now here's here's a place where when you look at the culture, you understand something you wouldn't know, the culture of that day that they lived in, you wouldn't know it by reading it now what all this meant. But tax collector is a dirty term in that culture. Here's what had happened. The Romans had literally occupied the nation of Israel and moved their army and taken it over. It was an occupied nation. They had set up tax collecting districts or districts in in all of Israel and then they had hired some Jews who would collect the taxes for them. The taxes went for their army. The taxes that they took from the Israelites also went to fatten the Roman treasury. You can imagine why the Israelites did not like it. It was their nation. They'd been taken over. In a sense, they were slaves to the Romans now and what the Romans wanted and their money was being taken from them. Not only that, but they hired Jews, which meant if you're, if you're a tax collector, you're a, you're a person who lives in the nation of Israel, but you've decided to leave the Jewish culture and not follow the Jewish law. So they're really, you know, you might call it backslidden. They've just, the tax collector is one who's moved away from his people in order to get monetary gain with the Romans. And they are the most hated, despised people in this culture, tax collectors. Because they're cheaters, they're extorters. And, and, And one of the things they would do is the Romans didn't care if you took more than they asked for, you just had to give at least what they asked for. But if you found a way to extort, cheat, and lie to get more money for your own, they didn't care. So these guys got personal gain in a dishonest way, and they had left the Jewish law, the Jewish religion, and the Jews literally despised them. Jesus walks up to this guy that is one of the most hated in the culture and says, follow me. That didn't make any sense to the Jews. It irritated them. But Jesus didn't see this guy as a rich tax-collecting cheat. Isn't that interesting? Jesus saw some potential that nobody else saw. You know, we look at people who don't serve Christ, and I've just learned in life that if you know their story, you'd probably have a lot more compassion for the person. They're not living right, they're hurt, they wound, but if you just knew their story, you'd probably have compassion because everybody has a story and there's some hard things that happen to people in life. I don't know what Levi's story was but I know just because he was living in deep sin and called a sinner here and by the way, the term sinner here, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but when you see this in the Bible, it's talking about those who've chosen a lifestyle of sin, willful, continual, deliberate. So that's different than a stumbling and falling and that's what it means when it says a sinner here because all of us have sinned, right? This this guy was entrenched, and he wanted to be there. But Jesus looked at him with compassion. He picked someone to follow him that everybody else would call a reject and wouldn't even thought of as a good one, as a potential candidate to be a disciple for Jesus Christ. But Jesus saw in him. Now catch this. Levi becomes Matthew. Matthew is the one who wrote the New Testament This rich, tax-collecting cheat, this despicable character, becomes one of the apostles, one of the twelve. He writes the New Testament eventually. He gives an eyewitness account of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And eventually, Levi, who became Matthew, which means, by the way, his new name meant the gift of God. Eventually, he would die as a martyr in Ethiopia for Jesus Christ. Nobody saw that when Jesus was calling him. They all got irritated because he was sitting with a sinner, associating with a sinner. I think as Christians, we, we just lose it sometimes. We lose the, the priority of Jesus. We don't understand really what he wants or how he wants us to look at people and to reach to people because we just get too familiar with being with one another. I'll tell you one of the great dangers for this church. You are wonderful people. You love each other. But one of the great dangers would be that we turn so inward in being with one another that we don't look at people who are hurting and wounded and need Jesus Christ. Just small things. I remember Karen and I visited a church a few years ago. And as we walked in, there was a lady with a beaming smile on her face. And it looked just like she saw Karen and said, well, look who's here. I'm so happy to see you. And she stuck her hand out. And Karen literally stuck her hand out and the lady went right by her and shook her friend's hand. And Karen was like, you know, and then walked away. We get so into seeing each other sometimes, we, we, we don't really care if they're among us. I think Jesus would remind us that he wants us to pay attention to, care about, and understand that he loves all people and wants to draw them to himself, and he would use us to do that. This guy has a heart that becomes so pure, he is used by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures of God. You know, God uses your past weakness, my past weakness, our sins, to show his amazing grace and forgiveness, right? We forget where we came from. He'll make a trophy out of a life like Levi's and make him Matthew. He'll make a trophy. He is making a trophy out of you and out of me. It's not because we're special. It's about his forgiveness and amazing grace. And it just keeps reaching to all people. I think the greatest evidence that Jesus is God is the way he transforms lives. I mean, you can argue with a lot of things about the Bible and all that, but you can't argue with the fact that when people come to Jesus Christ and give themselves to him, they change. They drop things that they were once doing that were addictive and hurting others. They're transformed as they walk with Jesus and follow Jesus and they leave things behind that you just don't see that kind of transformation coming from any other entity in our culture. Jesus transforms lives. A person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Argue all you want but once he's in your heart and once he's changed your life and when you see him transform your life and everybody else's lives, that's hard to argue with. Isaiah 118 is one of the great scriptures in the Bible. And as we think of Matthew and we think of the loss and we think of our own lives, look at this wonderful scripture. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. He, he forgives. He transforms. You know Michelangelo, the great artist. There's a sculpture called the Piate, I think I'm saying that right, depicting Mary holding her son Jesus after he was taken down from the cross. And those who've seen it, it live just say it's an overwhelming experience. The compassion she has on her face as she holds her son at the foot of the cross. That's that's Michelangelo's sculpture. But here's how the story goes. At the time he did that sculpture, he was too poor to buy marble for sculpting. And what he would do is go to a certain area and pick his way through the rejected or ruined stones of other famous sculptures. If it got messed up and they didn't like what they were doing, they'd just toss it out. If they thought they couldn't work with that, they'd toss it out and look for something better. Since he was poor, he picked through that. And one day he eyed the marble that would become the piaté. And he said he could see the figure inside waiting to be released by his chisel. Isn't that a cool thought? He drug it home. He freed the figures of Mary and Jesus that he had envisioned. And thus he produced one of the great masterpieces of artistic creation from the reject marble. And that's kind of how God does it hey, some of you would disqualify yourselves and you're gonna have to battle that because of where you've been and what you've done wrong. Jesus says, I want you to get it. It's about grace. It's about me transforming. It's about me forgiving. It's about me showing how wonderful my love is by loving you to a place where they can see you and me. Others may reject you. You may reject yourself. But God says, I can make a masterpiece out of your life. And you think of the worst person that has done you wrong. And I want to tell you something. His transforming love can change them as well. He makes masterpieces out of lives. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. That's not something that we can deserve. That's grace that is freely given to each one of us, and it's the grace He wants to give to others. I think God would say to the church, His church in America, stop looking down your nose at people. You know, God hates sin, but He doesn't hate people who sin. He hates sin because it hurts us, it wounds us, it wounds others. There's nothing but bad consequences for for our sin that we face. So he hates that. But it's because he loves you so much that he hates that. It's because he loves me, it's because he loves people. And God wants us to have a heart of compassion, even for the hardest sinner, the one no one thought would come, and that's what people thought about Levi. Levi surrendered his life. Now let me just take it to another level where we talk about following. There's this initial following where we give our life to Jesus Christ and we're, we're all in. But then there's, there's this place where we go as believers where we say, will we give up everything? Now I don't, I don't believe that God would call you to sell your house. I mean this is not what this is saying when he says surrender everything your whole life. It's not saying sell your car, sell your house, and move to Africa. And when when you're ready to give up everything, what it means is if he asked for anything, including all that I just listed, that you'd be willing to. But usually what he'll call you to is something right immediately around you where you can start to make a difference in people's lives and show his love. You know, when you think of Simon, Andrew, James, and John, he said to them the same thing he said to Levi, follow me and you know what was interesting they dropped the nets of the fishing boats and they followed him right away and that's cool but let me tell you the difference between them and Levi that was a family fishing business and they could go back to it if it didn't work out when Levi who works for the Roman government when he walks away from things he can't go back to his job because it's a Roman government and he's breaking his contract they're not going to have him again and it's interesting Another account of this, Luke, one of the writers of the Gospels, said this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. So it's the same account, different writer. Sitting at the tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up. He left everything, he left houses and transportation and a job he could never go back to, and he followed Jesus Christ. He was all in. Now Jesus sees you and I as well, and he would call you by name. He'd call me by name and say, will you follow me? Sometimes it comes to a specifics where he's ready to move us or he's ready to to bring us into an area where we're minister to a person. And each time the question is in front of us, will we follow him and what he's calling us to do? All those steps aren't easy at times. But they're always best if we follow the path that Jesus wants us to follow. Boy, I struggled with this when I received my call. And I've I've talked to some of you, you've heard this story, but I I think it's appropriate in this setting uh, to talk about it again because... um, when I was little, I was raised in what is known as a Pentecostal church. And, uh, I mean, it was really Pentecostal. You had to put tennis shoes on to get a good grip on the wall. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of movement of God and a lot of movement that, you know, just movement. And I remember in that setting, um, a few times before I was 12 years old, people would say something like this to me. God spoke to me and told me you're going to be a preacher. Someone else, God God told me that you're going to pastor someday. Someone else, God told me to tell you that someday he's going to use you to preach the word. Well, here's the problem with that for me. I didn't want that. Even before I was 12, I didn't want to be that. My thought was, I'll serve you, God, but listen, I watched my dad pastor small churches. He got beat up and criticized a lot and... Honestly, who would want that for their life? And so I just thought, please, no, God. And I, I remember thinking, I was just a little guy, but couldn't I just make a lot of money for you and just give it to you? That, that'd be more fun. Well, I eventually ran from the call of God In my latter teen years, I departed the faith. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I was one who believed that Jesus was the Son of God and didn't follow, even though I believed that. As I look back, I was running from a call on my life. I was struggling with this call to follow and give up everything. I remember at George Fox College where I was and, and not following the Lord at the time, now George Fox University, That one day someone said to me, hey, uh, the pastor from Beaverton Foursquare, Ron Mel, is going to be speaking tonight in the lobby at Sutton. Do you want to come? That was one of the dorms. I said, no, I don't want to go. And they said, well, he's a basketball player, which I was playing basketball at the time. and, And I said, yeah, I still don't want to go. They said, he's really funny. I thought, well, that'd be interesting, but I don't want to go. That night, it was Providence of God, I probably didn't know it, I was walking along past that dorm, I looked in, and there were about 120, 150 students in that dorm, just jammed in there, and I saw this tall, lanky preacher back there, and I thought, oh, this must be that guy, and I was intrigued a little bit, so I ducked in there, sat near the back, I would never heard anybody like this guy, now he was Pentecostal as well, but he was kind of a quiet Pentecostal. But I'd never seen any, this dude was completely himself, completely in his own personality the whole time. And he was warm and relational, and yet I could feel, I was familiar with it because of my youth, even though I wasn't following God, I could feel the Holy Spirit in the place. And as he talked, I felt God drawing my heart. Now, I didn't give my heart to Jesus that night, but I bowed my head, and for the first time, I yielded to a call. It was just the beginning. It was the first baby step. And I said to the Lord, God, if that's what you want me to do, if I could be myself and you would use me, I think I would do that. Still took another year, year and a half for me to turn around. Made a mistake, went to another school to play basketball got suspended from a Christian school. This is your pastor. (laughs) Not proud of it, but it's true. I'm a trophy of grace too. But eventually I, I just decided, you know what, running from God is hard. I crossed those boundaries that I knew and I got hurt and I hurt other people so I decided I wanted to follow the Lord not long after I made this all in decision I met my beautiful wife Karen and I remember as I started walking with the Lord I felt this pull to ministry again I wanted to be a sports announcer and that's what I was working towards with my education at George Fox there's a track there for that I I changed my major Karen and I had talked about marriage and I went to her when I just realized, oh my goodness, she doesn't know what the ministry is. She doesn't know what she's getting into if she marries me and I just thought she needs to know. And I went to her, just, I'm still, you know, I'm struggling with giving up everything. It may even cost me Karen, who I love, if I follow Jesus. You know, that's not, I wasn't thinking right, but I had to be willing if I was gonna follow Jesus to go where he went if someone else wouldn't go with me. So I remember driving to Western Oregon State and sitting with Karen one night and saying, "Honey, I, I, I think I'm going to have to yield to this this call that I think God's been on, put on my life to be a, to be a preacher, a pastor. And it's hard. And this is what I told her. And and this is true. But there's a there's a good side to it that I've experienced that I, I wasn't really thinking of. But I said we would live in a glass house." Our family would face a lot of criticism. might be a surprise to you, but all pastors face a lot of criticism. I, I remember someone asked me after two years of ministry, what have you learned when I was senior pastor here? And I said, sheep bite. That was, that was the first, you know, but shepherds aren't supposed to. You know, that the challenge of the man and woman of God is to have tough skin and a tender heart. And I said, we probably won't have very much money ever, Karen. And there'll be hardship. And I just thought, you know, we've talked about it. But I just thought, you need to know what you're getting into. And man, I was nervous because I thought I could lose her. And I felt like she was a great gift from God. And I said, you need to, you need to find out if you're, if you're called to be a preacher's wife. And she, she didn't take time to even pray about it. She said this at that moment. Well, I don't know that I'm called to be a preacher's wife. But I really believe that I'm supposed to be your wife. And if you're a preacher, then I guess I'll be a preacher's wife. And it's worked out great. But man, it was all on the table for me. It was all on the table for Matthew and he was willing to give up everything and that's what being a follower of Jesus Christ is at any moment to turn and go as he leads he left everything Romans 12:1 therefore i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies now catch this it's radical As a living sacrifice. What? What? For you and me. Living sacrifices for Jesus Christ. Whoa. That's heavy duty. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. And that's what I found out in the ministry. It's been so rewarding. Yes, there have been hard things, but you know, when, when God calls you to something, what the enemy wants to do is to tempt, tempt you to think of all the worst things that could happen if you follow Jesus. But the enemy doesn't want you to think about the best things. I'm telling you, it was so thrilling for me to watch those people get baptized today. Because this brother right here who did the flip, I've seen him sitting right over here for about six months. And all I can do is say, thank you, Jesus, that you're changing and transforming lives. He's doing for others what he did for me. And I've seen a lot of great stuff that I'm I'm just so grateful I got to be a part, I get to be a part of what the Lord is doing. And we all do, when we surrender, you'll get to be a part of building the kingdom, and it is the most exciting thing in the world. Second thought now. Will you that was a long first point, wasn't it? We'll, we'll see if we can tighten it up here a little bit. Will you follow the example of Jesus Christ to hang out with sinners? Mark 2:15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't think they really wanted to know the answer. They're indicting him with that question. They're trying to point out And this is their thought. Hey, if he was really righteous like us, he would know better than that. Well, they didn't know that he truly was the Son of God, or they wouldn't say that. He wasn't asking them what was right and trying to impress impress them. He came to show us what was right. Right? That's, That's who Jesus is. We're following Jesus Christ. We are Christ followers. And Jesus Christ met with sinners. They thought it was scandalous because Matthew invited, I mean, that night he gets all excited. Levi becomes Matthew, means the gift of God. He got so excited when he turned his life over to Christ that he invited all of his tax collector center friends to a party that night to meet Jesus. You know, the best soul winners are usually people who just come to Jesus because they've got all these unbelieving friends that are around them and they want them to know about Jesus Christ. Matthew brings them all, man. He's an evangelist right out of the gate. And then they say this, why does he eat with the sinners? Well, Jesus is trying to show them, he's trying to show us that he loves the corrupt, rich criminal. You have two kids, one of them goes astray. One of them's really just a great son. Do you love one more than the other when one's done well? I don't think so. Man, I've sat with parents who are so broken because their kids have moved into a lifestyle of sin or addicted to drugs. They love them so much, the wound is so deep. They deeply love them, even though they made mistakes. That is a heart of God for unbelievers. He deeply loves all people. Now granted, you don't go to heaven because God loves you. I mean, that's the root of why you can come. You go to heaven because you decide to love him back. You can reject him, even though he loves you. But his love doesn't stop, nor does he want it to stop moving from our hearts to the hearts and lives of unbelievers. He doesn't want us looking down our nose at people. He doesn't want us just mixing among ourselves without another thought of those who need him. Jesus loves people who believe the Bible, and he loves people who don't believe the Bible. Jesus loves the atheist. Jesus loves the stripper. Jesus loves the prostitute. Jesus loves the cheat, the scandalous cheat. And he wants to transform their lives. He wants to bring his grace. Yes, he wants to change them. It's true. But he's changing us too, isn't he? Luke seven thirty four. I, the Son of Man, Feast and drink and you say, these are the words of Christ. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend. Well, we know he wasn't a drunkard, so they're lying. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of the worst of sinners. But you know why they called him a friend of the worst of sinners? Because he was a friend of sinners. I get the feeling when I read the scriptures that every time he was with an unbeliever, that unbeliever felt like Jesus liked him. Do we mix with unbelievers? Is there any place in our life where we have an opportunity for each route, outreach rather? If not, it's our responsibility to have them in our lives somehow, to make it a point to get with people and care about them and love them. And if we're meeting with unbelievers, because we do in our workplace for sure, right? Do you think they have the idea that you really like them? I think that's how unbelievers felt when Jesus met with a woman at the well. She'd been married five times. He prophesied to her. He reached out to a Samaritan and a woman in that culture. It's terrible, but you didn't talk to either one if you were a Jew because you were special and they weren't. Doesn't that sound terrible? And yet as Christians, we're not far from that if if we're not careful. Get this protectionist attitude. Make sure I don't sin and my kids don't mess up and... How are your kids going to learn how to love people and reach out to the lost if we protect them so much they can never be with an unbeliever? Jesus was called a friend of the worst sort of sinner. Matthew invites all his friends. Look at the result of Jesus hanging out with them that night. Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. Not just sinners, the really bad, most known sinners in the community. Notorious. And there were many people of this kind among the crowds that followed Jesus. Now I could do another sermon someday on, you know, like, If you've had a problem with alcohol, probably the the bar's not the best place for you to go to minister, right? But it makes sense to me that God would want to reach people in bars, and it makes sense to me that he might lead you to a bar to help someone. It just makes sense, because if Jesus would meet with the worst of sinners, then we might find ourselves at a gathering sometimes with the worst of sinners. Loving on people. One Sunday evening, William Booth was walking in London with his son, Bramwell. William Booth was the founder of Salvation Army. And he took his 13-year-old boy into a London bar, a tavern. The place was crowded with men and women. Some of them were drunk, some of them were loud, and the air was filled with the smell of alcohol and tobacco. Now, this is a 13-year-old boy who had a righteous dad, and he didn't get it. And Bramwell, the son, said to Dad, Can we go now? Why did you even bring me in here? And General Booth said this Son, these are our people. These are the ones I want you to love. These are the people I want you to live for. These are the people I want you to bring to Christ. I believe God would speak to us and say, Sons and daughters, These are our people. These are the ones I want you to love. These are the ones I want you to live for. These are the people I want you to bring to me. Luke 15, 6. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. It's talking about one person coming to Christ. In the same way, now check this out. It's hard to believe, but it's true. There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over ninety-nine others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. What? Say that again. If I picked out—and I believe there are righteous people—and I mean that in, in a humble sense and—you and, um, you know, without fanfare—that there are righteous people who live among us, right here. They really love God and they're walking a straight path and they're loving people and they they're doing what we're talking about today if i took the 99 most righteous people and uh, from this congregation and we looked at their lives and the impact their lives have made through the years it would be a glorious celebration of what god has done and yet all of heaven is not as excited about that as one person who comes to jesus christ a sinner who returns what I mean, if I hadn't just read it to you, you might think that was heresy. I know God's pleased. I know he loves you. But what he's trying to show is the priority and the joy it brings him to have one restored. That's what happened with you. You were restored. You brought him joy. That kind of joy was his when you came, when I came. And there's no greater joy for the Lord than seeing one come to him. That's why I say when people come to Jesus here, I don't think we get it. If you brought someone out here without a leg and that leg grew out as we prayed for them and we saw an amazing visible miracle, it's not as great as the miracle of salvation. When one life comes to Jesus Christ. I have a friend, Jerry Swope. Some of you heard me talk about her before. She must be 90 years old now. She was my secretary when I was at the district office of the Assemblies of God in Brooks, Oregon as a district youth director many years ago. And I love Jerry Swope. She's the coolest lady. She retired at the age of about 75. Not long after her wonderful husband, they pastored a church there in Brooks, passed away. Bob Swope Sr., who I loved as well. Jerry, when she retired from the district office and her daily work, felt the Lord led her to go down to the Brooks Tavern. Now, this is a 90-year-old pastor's wife. She's younger then, I guess, maybe in her 80s. And here's what she did. She made brownies and cookies, and she could bake some good stuff. And she just walked into the bar and said, do you care if I leave these as, you know, for your customers? I said, no. So she went every week with her brownies and cookies. People started eating them, started to become familiar with her, thank her, hugging her. She had the smell of smoke and the smell of alcohol and all around her. And Jerry just loved on those people and treated them like they were somebody. And before long, what do you think happened? They figured out she was the pastor's wife. And some of them, even when they were drunk, would start to tell her how bad their lives were. And then they would ask Jerry from time to time, "Will you pray with me?" And Jerry just went in there loving on people and made a difference in her 80s. She's a remarkable woman. Somehow along the way, as committed as she was to the Lord, as righteous as she was, she understood the priority of Jesus Christ to seek and to save the one who is lost. She's one of my heroes. I remember years ago, I was a youth pastor here. The church was called Grace Community. Somewhere around 1984, I was here, I believe. And we had kind of a a youth revival happening. It was amazing. I I think I remember that there were 46 kids who got saved in a 12-week time frame. And it was just one of those times where it wasn't always like that in youth ministry for me, but one of those times where there was just an explosion that God brought. And I don't know exactly why it came, but it was cool. And we had just a number of kids coming. I mean, we jammed the youth room that we had at that time on the Sagar campus. So much so that we were meeting on Sunday nights that we had to switch places with the adult congregation, and we went to the big church space and they went to the youth room on Sunday night. Tells you something about some people who love kids right there. Because you can't get a lot of Christians to move out of their seat, let alone out of their church space, you know. When all that was happening, it it, it, it was, you know, it's it's tough to manage. Someone said when the ark is full of animals, you've got a lot of I'll just say waste that you have to deal with, you know. And man, we were having kids come from rough backgrounds. In those days, we called them headbangers, some of them. And they were the rock and roll kids and some who did drugs in this area. I went down and played foosball with them at the community center in those days. I didn't look like them, I'll tell you that. But I was just trying to love on them. And they started coming and a bunch of kids started getting saved. We had youth workers that were reaching out to kids and it was, it was cool. But I had a mom call me in the midst of this revival and say this to me. And then she meant well and in some ways I, I understand her, um, her thinking. I mean, I want to protect her kids too, right? We want it to be a safe place where people, where kids go, right? And here's what the mom said. Those kids are bad examples for my kids and if you don't stop them from coming, I don't know if we'll come anymore. And I felt this tension because I, I love this woman. I love her kids. The truth was, they were, her kids were a bad example for the kids coming. That's, that's the truth. But I loved them. You know, they had their Copenhagen circles and their attitudes to match, you know, that came from their, their genes. And, and uh, you couldn't hardly get them to go do the right thing in any setting. They'd been raised in the church. So I feel the tension, because some of these kids, I mean, I'm not even sure they're out of their drugs yet, right? Matter of fact, who here was a youth worker with me in those days? Raise your hand, okay? I know I, know, I saw this couple here, but there were about 12 people still here that were youth workers in that day. And here's what I said to the, to the woman, feeling the tension of, I love your kids, it's true that it's dangerous, I, you know, to some degree. I, and here's what I said, I just found myself saying, I don't know what to tell you. They're coming and they say they want Jesus and I just don't have the heart to tell them to go away. Well, thank God she hung in there with her kids. But if we're not careful, we won't want people who don't know Jesus among us and we're missing it. We're missing it. How can they find out who Jesus is if we never have contact with him? How will they know, the Bible says, unless someone tells them? I like this quote from Max Lucado. God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. And if you and I, I'm gonna add to that, are going to be just like Jesus, then we're gonna have to be willing to sit with sinners who don't know him and love on them. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into this world. Why did he come? To save sinners. Paul said, and I am the worst of all, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Let's move to the third thought I have for you today. It's very similar to the point I just shared, but will you focus your life on the priority of Jesus Christ? For some, maybe will you refocus your life on this priority of Jesus Christ Mark two seventeen. On hearing this, this—that means the complaints that these guys had about Jesus sitting with sinners. Jesus said to them, "It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Let me ask you a question. If I walk into a hospital with sick and wounded people laying on the table, is it an appropriate response to say, what is the matter with you people? If you'd have just exercised, this never would have happened to you. Eat your vegetables, for goodness sake. Or maybe that Christian attitude that says, well, if you had faith, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be sick. This is your problem. You don't have faith. I'm going to tell you, that is not an appropriate response in in, in, in either context there. Here's the appropriate response if you walk into a hospital full of sick people. Compassion and concern. And Jesus is saying when it comes to people who don't know him, that he wants us to be compassionate. That he wants us to be concerned. That he wants us to stop looking down our nose and stop our protectionism. And open our hearts to having a relationship with people, so they can come to Him. What kind of doctor spends all his time with healthy people? I mean, can you imagine going to an office to a doctor, and say, "Hey, I'm not feeling well," and he goes, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! I only meet with healthy people." <laughs> what? I mean, he'd be a kook, right? Doctors are to keep you, yes, maintenance good, but they help people who are sick to get well. That was the heart of Jesus, to help them get well, to help them overcome, and he wants us to carry the same heart. Here it is, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to find lost people and save them. The priority of Jesus Christ. But we as Christians sometimes inadvertently, we don't mean to say it, but but it comes out this way. You get your life cleaned up, and then we'll let you sit beside us in church. We'll let you come into this place. I mean, when people say, well, if I walk into that church, the walls would fall over. What they mean is the church has made me feel like they don't want me. Jesus wants us to know that they will not live right until they come to him. (laughs) I like to fish. I've caught a lot of fish in, in my day. My dad took me fishing a lot. And we used to go a lot when he was here in Oregon. We never once cleaned a fish before we caught it. Not once. As a matter of fact, it is impossible to do. You can't clean a fish before you catch it. You have to catch it, and then you can clean it. It's true with people who don't know Jesus Christ. They're not gonna do the right thing before they come to Jesus because they don't have the Spirit of Christ in them to help them overcome. But when they come to Jesus, he meets them with the power of the Holy Spirit, just like he met you, just like he's meeting me, and we're growing all the time because we have God's help, and we're getting cleaned up all the time. We're being sanctified is the term. Growing in the righteousness of God. Becoming more and more like Christ. But you can't do that before you know Jesus. So we have to stop this thought of, you act a little better and then I'll hang out with you. When um, I was a district youth director years ago, we took about 70 students to... um, the Bahamas for an outreach. Hey, people in the Bahamas need Jesus too. <laughs> Denny Duran was a pretty famous youth evangelist in those days. You may not know the name. But he's a good man. And we had him um, as part of that outreach. And we, the kids were out on the streets after we had done our orientation in the first day or two. And they were ministering. And we were out setting up a couple of restaurants, because when you feed 70 people, it's no small chore. You've got to find spots that, uh, that are ready for you. And we'd set it up. We were double-checking. And then on the way back, after all our checking, Denny's with us. He's the evangelist. And man, he could, in a, in a public setting, he was an amazing minister an amazing evangelist. But in private settings, I mean, you go to the gas station, this guy leads people to the Lord who are pumping gas. He was incredible. And then he says, let's pull over. We have a half an hour or or an hour or so here. Let's pull over and we'll just talk to people door to door. And I was 26 years old and I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, okay. So we pulled over. It was he and I and Karen, my wife. And we went up to some doors, kind of older homes that were kind of broken down. We knocked on doors. And this guy was amazing. He would start in, tell them we're here, that Jesus sent us. He would talk to them about the Lord. They would invite us in. And he was leading people to the Lord. And then we'd leave the house. And I thought, man, that is, that is amazing. So finally, after four or five houses, we come to a house. And Denny says to me, you got this one. And I said, what? No, <laughs> well, you take it. I said, what, what do you mean take it? Well, I'm not going to say anything this time. I'm going I'm to let you do it. I said, I don't want to do it. You're, you're better at doing it than me. He said, no, no, it's just you, the Lord's in you. The Holy Spirit's gonna help you. You just start and he'll, he'll lead you, but just go for it. So I said, okay, but I had a little anxiety. We went up, knocked on the door. Door swings open. I was not ready for what I was about to see. Here's a woman who is six foot tall, weighs, I'm just guessing, around 250 or 300 pounds. She was a big Bahama mama. I mean, she was <laughs> standing right there, a young woman, but what made it really alarming to me and scary is she was standing there in her underwear acting like it was no big deal so I looked at Denny and Denny just went <laughs> I think she had a kind of a skimpy slip, slip and a skimpy bra and, and I was like holy cow I, I just wanted to turn and run you know Jesus loves you, phew, you know, I'm out of here. (laughs) She invited us in. I was so glad Karen was with us. The three of us walked in there. Denny's trying to keep from laughing because he's watching me just struggle. And I started stumbling around. I don't even know what I said for the first four or five sentences. It was something like, well, we're just coming from here. And I started witnessing to the chandelier up there, you know. (laughs) I wouldn't look at her. But I finally got through it and I was asking the Lord to help me and I started talking about the Lord and I looked down at her eyes at some moment just a few minutes in and she had tears in her eyes. And then I found the courage as the Holy Spirit was empowering me to say would you pray with us because Jesus loves you and he sent us here and we gather in a circle with the 300 pound Bahama Mama in her underwear and she praised the sinner's prayer. And it was amazing to me what happened immediately after she accepted Christ into her heart. She said, she was real comfortable before. I don't know if it's the culture or what. I don't know why she was comfortable when I wasn't. But she was. But when she accepted Christ, in that moment she said to me, would you give me just a minute? She went into her room. And about two minutes later came out fully closed. I mean, immediately the Holy Spirit was start, starting to work on her heart. And we were able to invite her to the church where we were at. And to me, it's a testimony that you, 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 you can't clean people up before they come. We have to stop that thought. And if you're here and you think you need to be cleaned up before you come, that's not how it works. You come as you are. And then Jesus starts to do his work. Jesus will make a trophy out of your life. I want to close with this scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where we accept this focus of a priority of Jesus Christ reaching souls. Here's what it says in this verse. If anyone belongs to Christ, there is a new creation. The old things have gone. Everything is made new. All this is from God. Through Christ, God made peace between us and himself, and God gave the work of telling everyone about the peace we can have with him. Now, wait, 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 wait. God gave us the work of telling everyone about the peace we can have with him. Our work is telling everyone about the peace they can have with him. God was in Christ and making peace between the world and himself. In Christ, God did not hold the world guilty of its sins and he gave us, who did he give it to? To you and me, this message of peace. So we have been sent to speak. Now here's here's what happened. Jesus came down from heaven to reach out to souls. He's the one that we follow and when he was done and he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit and here's what Jesus said to us. The same thing that Denny Duran said to me. You got this one. It's yours. You take it. Holy Spirit will be with you. Time for you to carry that message. It says, we speak for Christ when we beg you to be at peace with God. When you go home today, I want you to pray something like this, if you would. Put it on the screen. It's um, the quote that says, Lord, open my eyes. I read this online. I really liked it. Lord, open my eyes to the spiritually needy people in my community. Help me to reach out to sin sick people without coming across like an arrogant know-it-all. Give me the right words to say. Show me how to tenderly minister to people with your healing love.